The following program is part of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations China podcast series. For more information, please visit our website at www.ncuscr.org. I'm Dan Murphy, Senior Program Officer at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and with me is Dr. Stephen Platt, historian at University of Massachusetts Amherst, whose work focuses on late imperial China, specializing in the 19th century and China's foreign relations. From 2008 to 10, Dr. Platt was a fellow in the second round of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Public Intellectuals Program. Today, we'll be discussing Dr. Platt's most recent book, A Military History of the Taiping Rebellion in Global Context, entitled Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom, which was awarded McGill University's prestigious Kundal Prize in 2012. Steve, welcome to the NCUSCR China Podcast. Great to be here, Dan. Thanks for inviting me. Now, your book challenges the conventional wisdom, which is that China was peripheral to the global system at the time of the Bloody Taiping Rebellion, which took place from 1850 to 1864. Can you describe for our listeners some of the ways that the Chinese system was more open than is usually portrayed, and how this influenced the Taiping Rebellion? Well. There's a lot of angles on this. I mean, the most obvious is sort of the familiar one of the spread of Christianity and how Hong Shouchun, the Taiping leader, sort of seized on on a sort of a bastardization of Christian doctrine, where he imagined he was he was the brother of Jesus Christ. And that's that's sort of the side that we know best. But、um, in fact, the sort of the 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 pretended Christianity of the the rebels had very little to do with the actual with the actual war itself,、um, and if anything, it it made sort of made foreigners less likely to help them because they saw it as blasphemy.、Um, much more important, I think, was the、uh, the possibilities for trade in China.、Um, Sort of the big hope after the Opium War of grand British fortunes being made in China wasn't panning out.、Um, the, the the second Opium War, as it's known, even though it, even though it had very little to do with opium、um, or the Arrow War,、um, was fought at the same time that the Taiping Rebellion was going on, and sort of culminated in 1860 with Lord Elgin and his troops marching on Beijing and destroying the Summer Palace.、Um, that was an attempt, to, and a successful attempt,、um, to force open a number of new treaty ports,、um, including up and down the Yangtze River, which was right in the heart of the civil war zone that had been that had been raging at that point for nearly a decade.、Um, and this is the point where this becomes a major international issue,、um, because. Fairly soon, you know, about a year after that,、um, civil war broke out in the United States, and British trade began suffering very badly in, in the,、um, across the Atlantic.、Um, and that's sort of the point when calls begin coming for, it, for, it,、uh, for more desperate calls for、um, a dramatic increase in the trade from China that can sort of. Hold off the losses that are being suffered in America, and in fact, at the end of the whole mess of the Taiping Rebellion, after the whole British intervention and whatnot,、um, Lord Palmerston points at Britain's intervention in the Taiping Rebellion to help put down the rebels、um, as being sort of the act that spared England from too much damage from the ongoing U.S. civil war. I think what I hear you saying is that trade was a major issue. But one of the really interesting things for me in your book was we know that in London and Washington and other foreign capitals, politicians, merchants, missionaries, diplomats, journalists, and others were engaged in heated debate about the Taiping Rebellion. So, in addition to trade, what were some of the other major issues that made this such a vigorous debate and made these foreigners care so much about what was happening in such a distant place? Um, putting aside the the interests, the more mercenary interests of trade,、uh, 
um, there was a real fascination with this as really as something of a nationalist moment for China. Um, the narrative that was circulated in the West, and, and in some ways a quite accurate one, was that it was the Chinese people rising up against the Manchus, um, sort of throwing off the yoke of the Tartars and, and you know, the possibility of this new power dragging China out of the past and putting it on a solid footing in order to become some sort of a modern state. Um, and indeed, the, the, the prime minister of the Taiping, the, um, Hong Rengan, who's a major figure in my book, um, was promising equal diplomacy. He was, you know, he was having the other kings, uh, Taiping kings learn English. He was, um, he was very welcoming to foreigners. And there was, there was a real hope for a while there that this might uh, usher in sort of the new China, um, which would emerge out of the 1860s and, and, be a, um, and be sort of an industrial power at some point. Um, it was, it was, in all of that, it was, the counter-narrative, of course, was that the Taiping were, were blasphemers, blasphemers against Christianity, and that they were, um, that they were merely a force of destruction, and there were very fierce debates, um, in Parliament, in the, in the press, amongst the public, um, but what you find is abroad, there, there's quite a great deal of sympathy for the Taiping, as being sort of nationalistic Chinese, um, as uh, you know, breaking the bonds of slavery to the Qing Dynasty, um, it's only really into the 1860s, once the once trade starts looming as the big issue, um, that that gets swept under the rug, and you have very fierce attacks on people who hold those views as being naive, um, that any hope for the rebels is actually going to ruin the British economy, um, and so. The, there's, I mean, suffice to say, there, there's never any agreement about what's going on there. Um, but you have, you know, everything from the anarchy has broken loose to this is this is the coming of the new China. Now, one of the more memorable characters in your book, maybe the star of your book on the imperial side, is Zhong Guofan, the scholar turned general who raises an army of Hunanese soldiers to fight against the Taiping. So, can you tell us uh, a little bit more about Zhong Guofan's role fighting against the Taiping? Why has there been so little written about him in English? And lastly, we know that Zhang Guofan is a very popular figure in China today. How is he viewed today in China, and how has his legacy changed since the Taiping Rebellion? Oh, this is this is a wonderful question. I don't know why so little has been written about him in English. Um, that came actually as, as a total shock to me when I started doing the research for this book. The last biography of him was 80-something years ago, um, written by one of the old Yale China directors. Um, but he's he's enormously popular in China. Um, he was he sort of rose to prominence in the 1980s. There was a, a three-volume historical novel based on his life that sold in the millions of copies of the time. Um, and sort of in China in the 1980s, Zhang Guofan was really viewed as sort of a model of self-discipline, of morality, um, as the model of what a father should be. Uh, much of the emphasis was on his family letters, and especially the letters that he wrote home to his eldest son while he was at war. Um, so Zhang Guofan is a moral figure. Once you get into the, uh, the, the, uh, the thorny issues of Zhang Guofan as a political figure, he's had an incredibly bumpy ride in terms of his legacy in China. Um, he, you know, he came from no military background at all. He was a brilliant scholar who, who was physically inept, couldn't ride a horse, um, and just n really by accident um, had thrust upon him the responsibility for 
for pulling together these sort of scattered and unregulated militias in Hunan province where a complete disorder had broken out and trying to pull them together to fight against the Taiping remnants there. Um, and over the course of the war, as the dynasty's forces failed completely and broke to pieces, it was Zhang Guofan whose army grew and grew and grew and ultimately um, would number 120,000 soldiers um, loyal entirely to him, not to the dynasty, but to him, Zhang Guofan. And they're, they're really the ones credited with putting down the Taiping Rebellion. Um, as far as how Zheng has been remembered, um, he was a great hero at the time, of course, and he was something like a god to the Hunanese. Um, Mao Zedong, actually, he grew up in Hunan, in the same part of Hunan, and grew up worshipping Zheng Guofan, wrote, told his teacher that, that he admired Zheng more than anyone in the world. Um, but by the 1890s or so, with the, very, with the first real stirrings of modern Chinese nationalism, attacks on Zhang Guofan begin and become very fierce up around the time of the 1911 revolution. And what that boils down to is that Zhang Guofan, as a Han Chinese, um, raised an army in order to put down Han Chinese rebels, um, um, Han and Hakka, um, in order to keep the Manchus in power. And so as you know, the turn of the century, Chinese nationalists saw him as being the greatest traitor to the Chinese race who had ever lived. Um, and he was just, you know, they, 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 he, he was just treated with absolute venom and they detested him. Um, they butchered Zhang Guofan. And aside from various revivals, um, the, uh, Chiang Kai-shek was, was, became an aficionado of Zhang Guofan, um, edited some of his writings to be used at the Huangpo Military Academy as sort of a, a textbook on how to put down banditry, meaning the communists. Um, mm-hmm. but, but really, Zhang Guofan was persona non grata until the 1980s. And I think one of the shifts going on there was that the politics of the, of the Taiping Rebellion had by then receded into the background. Um, up, in, you know, up through the 50s, 60s, 70s, the communists saw themselves as the inheritors of the Taiping mantle. By the 80s, that didn't matter much anymore. I want to take up this uh, theme of the legacy of the Taiping Rebellion. You just alluded to how it was seen in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. What about before that? Oh, before the before the fifties and sixties, Sun Yat-sen likewise. He, he was sort of nicknamed Hong Xiaochen by his friends as a youth. He grew up in the part of South China that the Taiping had emerged from, um, and so there's a there's a certain way in which he saw himself as finishing the work that they had begun. Um, the it, it's really, but it's really with sort of the with the rise of the communists and and especially Mao that the Taiping had become seen as as great heroes, as sort of a template for a peasant revolution. Um, during uh, so during the during the nationalist era, Chiang Kai-shek was very much more on the side of Zhang Guofan, um, who had a, who had in the 1930s he and Zhang Guofan had a big resurgence. One final question: Do we see an influence on China's relations with Western countries based on the legacy of the Taiping Rebellion? And if so, what is it? That's uh, that also is a great question. One of the, I mean, uh, hopefully in the future we will. I, 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 one of the things that mystified me when I was working on this book was how little the Taiping has been thought of as an international event, um, and from purely from a military standpoint, looking at how the battles went, looking at where the forces were being used, it seems very clear to me um, that the British intervention was crucial in allowing Zhang Guofan to win the war. Um, however, as it's remembered in China, it's Zhang Guofan versus the Taiping, and how it was remembered in England afterwards was you know, Charles Chinese Gordon versus the Taiping. Um, so the, 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 you know, the foreigners and Zhang Guofan were fighting on the same side, but had nothing to do with each other at all. Zhang Guofan had nothing but disdain for the foreign forces as much as necessary as they had been. Um, so it hasn't been thought of in international terms, although I think 
once you throw it into the hopper along with things like the opium war and the box of rebellion, um, it adds a very sort of strange nuance to British relations with China. Um, in the sense that, I mean, as the British saw it at the time and soon afterwards, um, this was the point, and again, they, you know, they didn't get what they were hoping for, but as they saw it at the time, this was the point where they were finally going to sort of break the pattern of the opium wars, of, of, you know, of picking on China, of forcing unfair treaties on here. And in their eyes, this was the point when Britain stepped in in order to help China. Um, they, were, they were there lending military support, trying to sell gunships to the Qing dynasty. Um, and here was the point where the, where the British were acting in concert with China, um, you, know, in, you know, in reality, they would much rather have the Qing Dynasty ruling China than themselves. And one of the great British fears at the time was that they would have to, that you know, China would fall apart and they would have to colonize it like India, which they didn't want. They would rather have the Qing in power. Um, at the same time, though, that um, and, and there's also the question of you know, did they pick the right side? And I think they most likely did not. Um, but it hasn't really been thought of in China as an international issue. The, uh, China has focused very much on the Second Opium War and the destruction of the Summer Palace by Lord Elgin. Um, but again, what gets lost in that is, first of all, the incredible shame in England that was, that was felt about that, that, England, that Elgin came home to enormous criticism. Um, but also he was sort of out partly out of guilt of what they had done in Beijing, um, that, that influential British began pushing harder for, um, for a gentler tone in China and for helping the Qing rather than continuing to push it. Um, so it, it, I well, think it greatly complicates the sort of black and white picture of, of, of how the British and the Chinese related in the 19th century. One of the things I really enjoyed about your book is that it added a lot of nuance what I had understood about relations between Britain and China in the 19th century. I should also add that it is a very elegantly written book. The title is Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom. Steve, thanks so much for speaking with me today. Thanks, Dan. I enjoyed it very much.